If you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16. It is a familiar passage, both in terms of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ and that the significance of that confession for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope to set this passage in its greater New Testament, really, all the will of God all the mind of God context as to what the church is. What, what is this thing that we do every Sunday morning? What is this thing that Christ has created? So as we look at Matthew chapter 16, we'll start at verse 13. I encourage you to give your attention to this, not as if I'm reading it, but as the Holy Spirit is reading it to our hearts and minds and receive it as what it is, the very word of God. Hebrews chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the knowledge that you have provided this word for us from eternity past. You've given it to us. In the Gospels, here in Matthew, you've given it to your church that we might know and understand your heart and your mind. And we pray, Father, that that be the very thing that happened this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, question. How many of you have a junk drawer at home? Okay, maybe, maybe a different question. How many of you have an entire junk room at home? And if you went home, when you go after the service, if you went home, would you be able to find something you could pick up and say, what is this? What does this thing do? Maybe it's something from your parents. Maybe it was something you found at a yard sale. And and you just, you know, you're not quite sure how to use it. You're not quite sure what its purpose is. And I wonder if somehow that's not how we approach the church itself. What is this thing? What is it that God has done here? What What has he created? What's it for? Last time we got together, we looked at Acts chapter 2. By the way, it is good to be back with you and to be in South Carolina and to worship the Lord with you this morning. But last time we were together, we looked at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as the mission statement of the church, that the church should be devoting itself to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so if that's the mission statement, if that's what the church is looking to accomplish, we still have to answer the question really that comes before that, what is the church? Why did God make this thing? What were his eternal purposes? And I think Matthew 16 helps us to see some of that in the light of the rest of the New Testament scriptures. And so as we look at this, uh, we will see, uh, and what I did is I googled or I, or I um, used Accordance, my Bible software program, And I put in the word church, and I brought up every reference 
in, in the New Testament, well, it's in the New Testament, to the word church. And they sort of fell into two general categories. One of them was uh, the functionality or the operations of the church. I'll deal with that. I'll talk about that from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and Acts are all very intensive, church-intensive books. And 1 Corinthians is, is sort of one of those that deals with the function of the church, uh, making it work well. But the second of these, these, these two categories, I think is, is covering a broad-scoped view of the reason the triune God created the church. What's its mission? What's it supposed to do? What are we looking to accomplish? What is Christ thinking when he thinks of the word church? And what, is, what was he saying in Matthew? And so I hope we see this Matthew 16 in the light of the greater context of what the scripture says about the church. I'll summarize the passage this way. In saving and sanctifying both individuals and his whole church, Christ perfects his church and brings glory to himself. Now that has a lot of nuances to it, but so let me read it again. In saving and sanctifying both individuals and the whole church, Christ perfects his church and brings glory to himself. So let's start with sort of what I found in 1 Corinthians, this sort of, uh, I'll call it owner's manual. Uh, we're driving a rental car, and uh, as, as we come down, you know, we do that. We, I kind of look in the owner's manual to find how to set the uh, cruise control or, or to turn off this lane assist craziness. It, it's driving me nuts trying to drive my car for me and beep at me every time I do something wrong. And so we, try, we read the owner's manual when we're trying to understand our car, if we get a new one or an unfamiliar one. Well, 1 Corinthians is, in many ways, the owner's manual of the church. I just want to cover it briefly. Chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians deal with division in the church, schism, uh, people not getting along. And so chapter 1 through 4 deals with various situations. Chapters 5 and 6 deal with both immorality and lawsuits. You remember chapter 5, that man committing an unspeakable sinful act with his own mother. And then it goes into people suing one another and bringing uh, brothers and sisters before public courts and, and what that should be. In chapters 7 through 10, it deals with various different questions, specifics, uh, but all that help us to understand what the church is and, and how it should operate. Verses 11 through 14, beginning with the Lord's table, Paul's uh, uh, connection with Christ's Passover and, and giving instructions to the Lord's table. Also, it goes on to the use of individual spiritual gifts in the church. A church is made up of persons with personalities and unique abilities and talents and, and focuses and desires. And so how do we blend that together as a, a whole church? Uh, brother Aaron this morning was preaching from Ephesians 4. And I'm sorry, brother, I really didn't hear anything after you said the, the, the first sort of sentence you said that caught my imagination. I, did, I heard other stuff, but that first sentence that you said caught my imagination. There's no possibility of unity and togetherness and friendship and collegiality except through Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. If you say anything in this world, somebody's going to jump on you and disagree with you. And, and there's no resolution to it. They're going to hold their opinion. 
I mean, I, I don't care if it's, you know, who should be the Patriots quarterback this year. I mean, it just people have their opinions and they hold to them like life and death. It's only through Christ's work in his church that we can have peace. Say, you know what? I disagree with you, but I love you. So I'm going to let go of it, this issue, and you and I are just going to be friends. And so we see this in 1 Corinthians. And lastly, in 1 Corinthians 15, we get to sort of the big picture and the resurrection and the centrality of the resurrection for the operation of Christ's church. And so I think 1 Corinthians is sort of the owner's manual for the church. But today I want to focus on the second category, God's methods and purposes for the church. What's he doing? How does he do what he does in the church? And I think we're going to see an individual component, and then we're going to see a whole body component, and then we're going to see Christ's ultimate purposes when he returns. He's trying to accomplish something in the church for the day of his second coming. And so as we understand this, we can understand more what we're doing here and what Christ's purposes is. So again, look in Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to kind of hit it briefly. I'm not going to go deep into the text. I just want to see sort of the 30,000-foot view. Verses 15 and 16, Peter gives his confession. Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this was an awesome thing. And Jesus notes it in verses uh, um, 17. Blessed are you, Simon. Bar Jonah is son of Jonah. Bar means son of in the Hebrew language. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father himself is in heaven. So it wasn't that Peter just studied the scriptures and figured this out for himself, or it wasn't something that the rabbis had taught him. God himself had come to Peter and said, my son is Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus, whom you're talking to, whom you're studying, whom you're following on, who you left your fishing nets for, is him. And so Jesus said, you are blessed of God, that you have received this revelation. It's not a small thing. Put it in its context. In the verses just preceding this, Jesus was telling the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And he wasn't talking about bread and yeast. He was talking about the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus says, watch out for it. Look out for it. It's a problem. Look for the truth. And then Peter comes with this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's exactly what the religious leaders of of Jesus' day and Peter's day were objecting to, that Jesus was that very Messiah. And so he uses the example of a rock. In, the, in that day, a rock would be a cornerstone, it could be a foundation, could be a central truth on which you build a whole building. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Deacons, elders, God's people, Christ builds his church. What's the old saying? If you want it done right, do it yourself. And I think Jesus has that same mindset and mentality. He's going to do it himself. He's going to build his church. But he does it through this individual revelation to a single man whose name was Peter. What we're going to see at the end of the sermon is that a similar thing is going on with each one of us. It's not that we all have our own individual truth. 
is that the one truth is revealed to individuals. And that changes us. And that shapes us. And by it, Christ builds his church. And Christ says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, you don't often think the gates of a city attacking or going on the offensive. What Christ is saying, even the gates that Satan might construct to defend his own kingdom will be defeated. The gates of hell will not prevail. Even if Satan tries to wall himself in, even if, if, if he sees Christ on the offensive and his church marching forward and the gospel prospering, even if he tries to, put up, to hide behind gates, Christ is going to win. And what he's saying is the success of Christ's mission is guaranteed. He's going to build his church. He's going to start, he's going to finish, and it's going to happen. So, with these promises, we see that God, by the revelation of truth, builds the church through his revelation to to people individually of his singular truth. He builds his church, and he's going to defeat Satan. And so each one of us, has there's an individual component of receiving and learning and, and, and having God's truth revealed to us individually, personally. But with these promises, we can look at our next passage, and we're going to look at three. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is talking about Saul, also named Paul. And you may remember his conversion on the road to Damascus. Christ himself appeared to to Saul. And, And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, yeah, I'm the one whom you're trying to persecute. I'm the one whose church you're trying to destroy. And so Paul is redeemed and regenerated and converted. And those religious leaders want to kill him. And he actually literally gets let down out of the city through a basket to deliver him safe so that he can continue. And then we pick up, it's in that context, we pick up Acts 9.28. And we read, So he, so Saul, so Paul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Saul was preaching Jesus. He's preaching in the name of the Lord. He's preaching Christ. He's preaching the same truth that had been revealed individually to Peter, had been revealed individually to Paul, that Jesus is the Christ. And Now Paul's preaching it widespread. It says in Jerusalem. But then it notes the church everywhere is being built up. All through the region, all through places perhaps Paul had never been. But God is building his church. And so, uh, and the note to take from that is not so much where the church is being built up, but how. There's only one way to build the church. And that is in the preaching of the fullness of the person and work of Jesus Christ and its implications. We're in a transition period here. Um, I'm trying to sell a house. Please pray for that but to come here and to preach God's word. And if ever, 
I get onto something other than. I, I, I want to promise you I never will. But if I ever did get onto some hobby horse other than Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you each individually have authority and responsibility to go to the elders or come to me personally and say, Brother, what are you doing? Because Christ is the only way. The preaching of Jesus is the only way his church is built up. It's the what that's being preached that's being focused on. Verse 31, and it says, And the church had peace and was being built up. The, the thing we should notice in that section, that, that phrase, is the verb tense. The church was being built up and had peace. The verbs are passive. Paul's not building the church. The apostles aren't building the church. Christ is being, the church is being built by Christ. Do you know the difference between active and passive verbs? An active verb is where I'm doing it. A passive verb where somebody's doing it to me. I'm just along for the ride. I'm sitting there and it's happening to me. The building of the church was happening to the church. And Christ is the one doing the work. And so God gave the peace. God did the building. Verse 31, second half of the verse, describes how. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Fear and comfort, it multiplied. Again, Aaron was talking about the importance of sanctification and how some churches in big evangelicalism skip over that important factor, that, that important doctrine of being sanctified, being changed into the likeness of Christ, being less and less like Mark and more and more like Jesus. Insert your name in here. Being less and less like you, being more and more like Jesus, happens by fear and comfort. The fear of the Lord is not dread terror. It's, it's not, you know, um, fear that freezes us. It's actually fear that energizes us and motivates us. It's to know and respect God's commandments, to know his law. To know what he says. And to respect it. To give it its place. It's due. To let it change us. To know that the Lord lovingly chastens his own children. God will not let his children get far. As they head a path and head a course away from him. And in a direction that's unpleasing to him. If we're his, he loves us too much. To let that go on very long. And the fear of the Lord is to know that's coming. And say, you know what? I'm going to fix my mess before Jesus has to. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to take the, the correct path, the right course. And so they're walking in the fear of the Lord, but they're also walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is, a, this is you know, the church today gets one of two of these. Oh, be comforted by the Holy Spirit. You're, you're good, and God loves you, and it's, and it's all great, and it's all happy. And that's true. Or... You're rotten and miserable. You're terrible, wicked, hopeless, helpless people. And that's true. But both are true. We need to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just quickly turn to Romans 8 that deals with this. Um, I think in a, in a, there's a lot of passages we could turn to, but this is the one that kind of jumped out at me. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses uh, 9 through 11. It talks about the comfort of the Holy Spirit and what it is. And it starts with verse 9, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If you're a child of God, 
You're not just a fleshly being anymore. You're in the Spirit. The Spirit is in you. You've been indwelled by the Spirit. You have union with the third person of the Godhead. Keep reading. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's a universal statement. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And that's certainly at his second return. Second coming. Uh, Many of us, Maybe all of us will be dead, physically. And we have the promise that at his coming, he's going to raise to, to, to new life, to everlasting life, those who were in Christ. But we also have a promise in the interim that he's going to give life to our sinful, dead bodies so that we, it's not just a case of I have to obey Jesus. It's a case of I delight to obey Jesus. And he's making that change in us. And that, in a sense, is the purpose for the church. Christ works in individuals by his word and spirit, through the means of grace, the word, sacraments, prayer. He works in individuals. As he works in individuals, he changes the whole of the church. We can't expect him to change the pews. Can't expect him to change the carpet, the ceiling, the fellowship hall. Well, that's not the church. You, if you are in Christ, are the church. And through fear and comfort, Christ wants to be your Lord, your Savior, your elder brother. And that's the purpose, that he wants to perfect his church through the word of his truth. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 3, and this will be the last text we look at. This is a familiar one. And... I suppose this probably gets preached at a lot of weddings, and that's good. I I truly encourage uh, anyone getting married or considering marriage to make sure the word of God is preached. Make sure the word is read. And this might be one of the passages, but it's not really the ultimate point of the passage. It's familiar. You've probably heard it a hundred times. I hope maybe I can put some new spin, new, new light to it that will make this passage come alive for you. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, that's not just marriage. That's husbands every day. After your marriage, till one of you departs to be with the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. How? By giving yourself up for them? Okay, that's great material for a sermon. It's great material for each one of us that is married or considering marriage. Get ready to do that. Make sure you're marrying a woman that you can do that with. Make sure you marry a woman, ladies, that you marry a man that's going to have that focus. Great wedding sermon, but that's not really the point of the passage. Keep reading. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, nothing better that Christ could have given for his church than himself. No better wedding gift for the bride than the bridegroom giving himself. Why would he do it? If you want it done right, do it yourself. He's building his church. 
verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He's already saved us. He's already washed us. He's already regenerated us. He's in the process of sanctifying us. Why? Just to make our life difficult? Why do hardships come? Why is there puzzlement? Why is there difficulties? Why is there struggle to obey? Why are we fighting against sin? Why doesn't Christ just make it all good? He can do it. It's not lack of power. Why does he put it this way? Until either we die to go to him or he comes back to us. Verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without a blemish. I put the shirt and the tie and the pants and a garment bag coming down here and the garment bag's not long enough and it gets piled on top of under other things and wrinkles happen. Uh, you know, it's not too bad, I, you know. But wrinkles happen. It's the natural process of garments. And that's the picture that's being used here. Like a garment, Christ doesn't want it to have a stain. He doesn't want it to have a wrinkle. He doesn't want it to have any, any blemish at all. And that's what he's going to do with his church. He's going to make us individually and collectively, as his whole church, totally without sin. Without a single fault. Nothing anyone could point to, to saying that's not good. Or it could be better. He's going to make his church into that very thing. So he can present it to himself in splendor. Turn to Ephesians 3. I said that was the last one. Okay, Ephesians. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, just to give a sense. That's what Christ said he's going to do and wants to do. What this passage tells us is that he's able to do it. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The only way Christ gets glory from his church is if he completely and totally finishes all of his, of his desires for it. Completely without sin. Unable. Imagine, they talk about this in glorification, in, in our theology. We will be unable to sin. If a temptation could even present itself in heaven, we would see it and say, I don't want that. I don't, want, I don't want to eat Brussels sprouts. I hate Brussels sprouts. I don't want to sin. I hate sin. Unable to sin. No desire for it. No pull. No temptation. Fully free of that. Done. Over. So, let's make some application. It's a guarantee. He's going to do his work. So, let's make some application. And it's in the three areas. Number one, Christ's work in the church begins with his work in each one of us. The struggle with sin, dealing with Satan and temptation. And I think the lesson here is to have revelation from God like Peter did. But to stop working to see truth as a purely intellectual pursuit. Just a fact that I'm going to add to all my other set of facts. But to show us truth in a way that changes us. The beautiful part about the 
using Matthew 16 for this part is that Peter was a work in process. He said in Matthew 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What's one of the next appearances of Peter? He denies the Lord Jesus. I don't know that man. He curses and he swears. Even as he makes the profession of faith, Peter is a work in process. God is still changing him. He's working in him. Christ is still building him. Such that Peter would write two of the most, two glorious epistles in First and Second Peter, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. God's work is a work in progress. Don't lose hope. Let sin be an encouragement to repentance and holiness. Don't expect yourself to be perfect immediately. That's not an excuse for more sin. That's an, an encouragement, a motivation, an energy to say, you know what? I'm not doing that again. Lord Jesus, help me. Build me. I am your church, along with my brothers and sisters of Roebuck PCA. We are your church. I am your church. Build me up and change me. Secondly, we saw that the proclamation of truth builds the church collectively. Be in church. Be around other believers. Be in church where the apostles' doctrine is regularly taught and preached and proclaimed. And we can see the apostles explaining what it is the Old Testament was saying. And we hear Jesus Christ elevated and preached and proclaimed and explained and being around other believers. Remember what we said? They were devoting themselves in Acts 2 to the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship. Being around other believers is an opportunity to have other people tell us about Jesus. Let me tell you what Christ did in my life. Let me, let me, let me praise Christ to you. Or we can go to them with our questions. What do I do with this situation? How do I, how do, I do this God's way? Be in the church. Be around other believers. And that Christ will build this church up collectively. And then lastly, we have the certainty of success. Christ is going to build his church. It's going to happen. A friend of mine, um, some of you may know him. His name is uh, Josh Killen. He attends a church not far from here. Posted on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago, Saturday night. And he said, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for tomorrow morning's sermon that was to be preached at his church. And the spoiler alert was Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The spoiler alert that Christ gives us regarding his church is that he wins. He will do everything he set out to do. He will completely remove the sins that beleaguer and plague us, the physical ailments that we struggle against, Satan and his minions, the temptations of this life. He's going to win. He's going to do his work. He's going to finish it completely. Don't lose heart. Keep on keeping on, knowing that the work that's happening in you, by God's grace alone, is building up his church, which Christ has promised to finish the work and make you into something he says, look what I did. Put your name in there. Christ is going to say of you, look what I did. 
This is hope. This is, this is a certainty of, of, of Christ's promise to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your holy word that, that lays out the purposes of your church, its mission statement, its, its function, its everything about it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the, the faith to believe what's right here in front of us. I think it's plainly enough said. Lord, give us the faith to believe it. Give us the joy of watching it happen and seeing exactly what you're doing. Give us a mind to praise you for it and a heart to give you the glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close our uh, service this morning by number 213. Uh, Number 213, what child is, uh, is this? That child built his church, and he's coming back one day for his beloved. Number 213, stand with me.